The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Picture, if you will, a world in which a god of thunder flies an epic spaceship towards a medieval-looking castle. That is totally metal. And this is totally super. <laughs> Welcome to totally... It is metal. Welcome to totally well, super, I, it, where we review every every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are... Yeah, as Arthur pointed out, we are reviewing the movie who nearly every shot of the last third of the movie belongs on the side of a van. Yeah, um, it really does. I, I, I think that this is a movie that, that lends itself to um, much airbrushing. Um, mm-hmm. Much airbrushing, maybe a few album covers. It features multiple Pegasi. Yeah, they're, 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 the, they're the Pegasi, there's the, the demon monster. I mean, you've got, you got everything from your 70s van to your 90s Metallica covers and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is so fun to be talking about this movie because I love it so much. And today we get to talk about the cast. And then we have a big discussion coming up about what happens when a franchise decides to pivot. And I have a few in mind and I want to see what Arthur has to say too. Um, but let's just jump right in. Um, I think we will go backward through the cast um, so that we end with Thor and say what we think of everything. So let's start with uh, Anthony Hopkins as Odin. We've had to talk about him twice before. Um, and I said in the last one that he seems to be phoning it in, but it's always fun even when he phones it in. Mm-hmm. I would dare say in the short time that he's in this film, I felt like he is having more fun than I've seen him have in almost any. I've never seen him be funny. But I know it's just one line, but his, oh shit, is him playing Loki, playing him is so much fun. I've never seen Anthony Hopkins have sort of silly fun before. It almost makes me want to see him in a comedy, like a right full out comedy. Well, I'd say the thing that you want to, probably the closest thing to it uh, is Mask of Zorro. Uh, Because I remember uh, an interview with him, like when he was doing, you know, when he was cast in Mask of Zorro was sort of like, you know, Zorro's Obi-Wan. Somebody said it just like, you've got all of this, you know, this classic out of being this tremendous like serious dramatic actor uh and uh, anthony hopkins said well I, I mean i don't disagree with that but every now and then you just want to do something fun and earn a shit ton of money while doing it <laughs> um uh, i absolutely agree with with that as a thing and look i think there have been many roles i think that frankly 70 percent of the roles that he does he phones in i would i would believe him if he was one of those actors who like didn't know like you know how gwendoth paltrow like doesn't know which marvel movie she's in like i mm-hmm. truly believe that he that he might be one of those that he couldn't tell you 10 movies he's been in um, right. because he just shows up to work he's got a script I don't think he does a ton of research for most of the work that he does I think he just knows how to say the lines it's almost like I think he goes in and does his roles the way that someone does an audition like a cold read of an audition like he knows how to do cold reads so much I don't think he's going in and studying for half there the is roles. a wonderful Mo- uh, there is a wonderful uh, version of King Lear that he just did uh, that's available I think on Amazon uh, that's really that is is uh, it's really great seeing Anthony Hopkins in his element there because it's you're seeing him bringing a level of uh, commitment and well, passion that you know I haven't. And seen that since would be Lester. the other thirty percent. I I would also give him credit for um, his role on Westworld, uh, where he was really good and deep and vulnerable in ways that I don't mm-hmm. often see him be. So I think that occasionally a role comes around for him that he really embraces and and makes his own. But I think he he knows what he can do really well. Like you know he he. Knows knows what, what what he can phone well, in and I, still people will enjoy. I, so here's the thing. I never actually want to say, I think this is what he 
he does with his process. Because if there is one thing I have learned, it's that the instant that you think you know what an actor is doing in their process, you're wrong. Um, the most that we can say is that when we see him in films like Thor uh, or things like that, that we can say it gives the impression that he's phoning it in. Um, That's which is fair. obviously not which is obviously not something that an act you know it's not uh, you know even if you're trying very hard if you're giving the impression of phoning it in then yes there is still a there's still okay, a negative so let, associated let me clarify with that, I, I I feel like he deserves some clarification so let me clarify what I what I mean by phoning it in I don't think that he does a lot of prep I don't think that he is you know there's when you listen to Patrick Stewart give his um give his description of his experience on Star Trek the Next Generation it was so fast and there was so much going on he could often not tell you what's happening in in many different episodes uh, mm-hmm. because there's just not time to fully get into the plot fully get into the script fully get into going on you're he's on 80% of the time he's got all the lines and he just needs to deliver them very very well um, occasionally there are episodes on next gen when that's not the case but when there when there are episodes where he needs to be sitting in the chair and saying you know command lines like fire phasers you know like that's like he is not he's learning the lines but he's not doing a lot of of deep actory prep like he might do for for playing a Shakespeare like for a Shakespeare play or for you know it's and I think it's why you it's interesting when you watch his performance of Picard in the new show that he that, that he did or in many of the movies you see a more nuanced more subtle more you know more detailed performance than he gave during the show because it was a movie he had time to really focus on what he on what he was doing um anthony hopkins works a ton so i absolutely believe that there are times where he just doesn't need to do the same prep work he would do for a king lear that being said when i say phone it in i don't mean on the day he isn't giving it his all i do not mean that that on the day he isn't using the the voluminous talents that he has to the best of his ability in the moment you know i think that very much you know if you could make a graph of his process it would be so tony so tony so tony so tony action wizard you you know, i think i think it's just it's it's that is is what i i expect but I, we don't know what his process is and it could be that you know that i am way off base and you and i have had talks before about process i remember when you and i did romeo and juliet you had a very in-depth lengthy process to prepare for romeo where i could just sort of be hanging out and and jump into character in like two seconds and i don't believe that i gave a haphazard performance i just just had a different process no. than you and one it's not better than the other mm-hmm. um but i like i i don't i do like last thing in the world that i'm going to do is impugn anthony hopkins as an actor that would be <laughs> really unwise of me let's <laughs> jumping into another another amazing actor i'll let you start carl urban the elusive carl urban as scourge go i so it was a uh, on the one hand it was kind of an inspired choice i thought carl urban you know delivered a great turn as surge who was a character that i was not actually really that familiar with with. He played the comedy and towards the end the uh, the noble pathos quite well. Um, my only two thoughts with Scourge are first almost seems like a it almost seems a shame to quote unquote waste Carl Urban in that character for the Marvel universe because you know I don't see a world now in which I mean I guess guess it's possible but it would seem strange if Carl Urban suddenly showed up playing another character now in the MCU and uh, when you've got somebody who whose work I enjoy as much as Carl Urban I, I always hate it when it's just 
like, oh, that was great seeing them in this one film, but now I know that for the next 20 Marvel films that come out, I'm not going to be seeing him again. Uh, that, so that was my one thought with that. Scourge as a character was interesting. The only thing that jumped out at me about it was uh, watching it with Kelly, and you know, and he has the big, uh, the big noble sacrifice moment at the end, where he takes, uh, where he's got his two guns and he's mowing down the skeletons so that these guardians can get away. And it really was driven home. We've had this movie where it's just like you've got, you know, spaceships and lasers and, you know, and big glowy swords and hammers and lightning bolts and all these things. And the instant that all of a sudden two straight up firearms are introduced, there is ever so slightly definitive change in tone. And yes, don't get me wrong, you know, huge machine guns were very much part of the 80s, uh, you know, the, the 80s action film uh, mythos. But it, it just sort of watching, watching an Asgardian god with two essentially human gunpowder-based firearms. Uh, and we've talked about this before. You can have an epic fight with laser swords, with blasters, with even regular swords or something, and it is possible to know that, yes, even though these two characters are fighting to the death, you can sort of think of it in the abstract sense of, oh, wow, this is, what a great story. This is wonderful. Um, but at least for me, you cannot, I, I am far past the point where I can completely remove myself uh, into the abstract when uh, an actual firearm is on the screen. Uh, it, was, it was something interesting that jumped out at me. That's, uh, I think that's fair. Um, I, I First of all, Carl Urban is, you know, I am able to see Carl Urban in the roles that he plays, but uh, but Mrs. J is, she doesn't recognize it's him until I point it out. She's like, wait, that's ah. Carl Urban? Um, because he really does physically and performance-wise disappear into the roles he plays. But I will say he tends High to play characters with a, ton, uh, uh, with a ton of gravitas. Even his character on The Boys, which is funny, it's a character that just has a ton of weight. To see him place a character that is, until the very end, so weightless and so funny and so kind of a doofus, um, mm. is, believe it or not, shedding a, one of his bag of tricks things that he goes to, is that he plays the underlying gravitas of things so well. So the fact that he can pull off being funny holding a shake weight is is a t like the man, there's nothing he can't do. And that's mm -hmm. that's you know one thing I have to appreciate. Him, Scourge with the machine guns is a huge, iconic look for Scourge. In it the is. Yeah. And his final battle where he carries the machine guns, also iconic. If you're going to have Scourge, he must have machine guns. Oh yeah, must, they, were, I mean, they going, were locked into that choice. They had to. Yeah. Completely understand. Um, I Where I'm going to disagree with you is, yes, it does bring too much reality, and yes, you do get the sense of, oh my gosh, people are dying. Um, but in a, in a movie with lightning, giant monsters, blasters, it's really hard to give him some, you know, knives being thrown. To give him a different kind of action scene, different kind of weapon, um, I think is actually a little bit inspired. Um, I think that it it makes it so that when he's doing his thing on screen, it is a different thing than the other people are doing when they're on screen. Um, and I think that's something that this movie pulls off with aplomb is that everybody has, you know, a signature move, you mm -hmm. know, and you get the sense of what they can do based on that signature move in sort of a Mortal Kombat Street Fighter-ish kind of way. And yeah. I think that it, you know, I really in enjoyed that. He's great. Um, all right, I will jump in uh, with Tessa Thompson as uh, Valkyrie. Um, this is hard for me because I know I'm in the minority here. I am not a fan of most of the stuff that I have seen her do. And that extends extends to this film unfortunately um i remember her from veronica mars thank you arthur for getting me into watching the first two seasons of that um uh i didn't like her there um i don't really like her here um i feel like everyone else there's something about the the way that she the, the way that she is per, per 
performing that takes me out of the film and like I can tell she's an actor in a suit doing a role um, and I don't know what it is um, technically the performance seems fine it might just be me um, but there's something about and I know that she's beloved I know that that people love her in this role and I and so I'm not going to fault her it might just be my own dysfunction but I am not getting um, I can see what she's selling but I'm not buying um, and I wish I could say more I think the character is is you know and you know what I mean when I say this it's fine but I don't know that's my thought I want to get your thought hopefully I hope you feel different uh, she neither dazzled nor disappointed me I think um, I mean to be honest Valkyrie is a ironically enough Valkyrie is the closest to the proverbial everyman role in this or the you know the straight person uh, everybody else is crazy kooky um, even Hela is like look at how maniacally Shakespearean evil I am uh, and Valkyrie is actually like the most quote unquote normal uh, so that is always a it, it's especially tricky in those situations to to judge not just the character but the, the version that the but how the actor is doing with that uh, because in a movie where everybody else has a moment where they are spiking the volleyball Valkyrie's job frequently is the setup and the fact is is that a perfect setup is not what makes the highlights real it's always the spikes but the spikes require the perfect setup uh, so that's not to say but that I, I never expected I'd hear you do a sports metaphor that's crazy but oh keep yeah going. Um, the uh, you know that's not to say that I necessarily uh, think oh my gosh she was the perfect straight role uh, it's more that it's harder for me to even be able to say whether or not an actor is doing a good job in the story I mean really the only way sometimes that you can tell that somebody is doing a, a good job as the not funny one is how funny are the people in the scene around her because if they're funny um, then she's also doing a good job if that makes sense it's sort of like you have to kind of infer the fact that because everyone else is being really quite luminous in the scenes that she's in that uh, she is con she is contributing to that um, no actor exists in a vacuum uh, but yeah no I there was nothing about anything she, she did that particularly took my breath away I'm not too familiar with her other work I mean I remember her from Veronica Mars um, I will say I did remember enjoying seeing her depth develop over the course of the next few films too uh, I hope she is uh, I hope that Valkyrie is featured in uh, Love and Thunder uh, especially you know I believe that be, she is think, yeah I think it would be a great she'd be a great uh, person to play off Jane Foster so I from uh, what I understand so yeah. she definitely plays off Jane Foster in that film um, uh, I also worth noting she is she is my least favorite kind of character and that's again not the actress's fault but I hate character not hate I strongly dislike characters that are too cool for school um, that just like come in with that swagger um, I was never a Han Solo dude there are exceptions that can be made for people who are insanely clever at the same time I think Tony Stark is an example of a character who's too cool for school but is also so fast talking and clever that th it, that's fun to watch um, but if Star-Lord if Star-Lord was not underneath it all big dork or if Spike on Buffy had remained super cool Spike I would be so uninterested um, you know I if they're going to be too cool for school that needs to be undercut by something else and that is again personal preference mm -hmm. okay Jeff Goldblum is the grandmaster on the complete other side of the spectrum here is a character who from what I understand he he was encouraged to improvise through most of the movie um, and just that, like be Jeff Goldblum um, so what is your before I give my opinion what is your opinion of of what Jeff Goldblum sir in this, in this of role? all of the Jeff and maybe the modern of Jeff all, Goldblum of all of the Jeff Goldblum roles that Jeff Goldblum has played this is one of the Jeff Goldblumiest <laughs> 
Is that it? Is that all you got? That's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the, yeah, the only other, the, clearly the Grandmaster was not set up to be in any way really kind of a, a frightening villain. Um, I mean, no. yes, they've got the scene where he, you know, he execute like he, they do the old trope of like, look, I'm a really friendly guy. Everything's cool, but watch as I execute you without even like blinking an eyebrow about it. Um, but even that was meant to be more sort of a, a comic moment than uh, if, if the goal was for him to be both quirky and at the same time have any menace, I don't think that was achieved, but I don't think that was the goal. So yeah, I think he did great. Yeah, I th- I I Jeff Goldblum's an interesting character because if you look at his work in the eighties and nineties, he's actually a really good dramatic actor. He I like I will I'll go toe to toe with anyone who tells me that he isn't spectacular in The Fly, mm-hmm. um, like Oscar worth in The Fly. He's astounding. Um, of late, he has become very very Jeff Goldblum-y. Um, he's got a, a really strange show on Disney Plus, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Um, and and this is certainly him just yucking it up he it's like he much like hopkins he knows what he can do he knows mm-hmm. what he's hired there to do he knows yeah he, he knows, knows why, why they, cast they hired him. him yeah yeah he knows what they want him to do so he comes in and he's doing he seems to be having a really good time with the absurdity of everything um i really love you know the 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 callback to the moment where he executes someone where they try and execute someone else for interrupting him and he's like no no that you don't execute someone for interrupting what's wrong with you yeah <laughs> like i just the whole the, the whole whole bit that he's doing is 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 super fun does it take me a little bit out of the movie yes but this is a movie that is you know you can do that in a comedy and that's how you know it's a comedy you can be taken out of a movie by it being a comedy if it's truly a comedy if this were if mm-hmm. he were trying to do this in the second thor movie i think i would be um much less re- receptive to it but okay let's mm-hmm. talk idris elba as as heimdall i'll go first um he just helped as an actor that i really really like and i really liked him um as heimdall in the first two movies and he's certainly doing fine here um but i feel i kind of if there was a plot that i didn't care about and wanted to watch like could live without it's him taking the asgardian people and hiding them and that whole thing going back and forth um i understand you needed to provide thor a way of knowing what was happening back on asgard um but every time he was on the screen i wanted to get back to what else was going on either with Hela or with them as the C plot I was not um, I was I, I just wasn't intrigued by it but I think that you need it for everything else because otherwise if, if it's not Heimdall and he can't communicate in the way that he does Thor has no idea what's happening on Asgard so you don't have the the ticking clock the impetus for Thor to try really really hard to get back now um, yeah and it's not just so, for uh, it's, it's not just sometimes useful for plot it's when you have a movie that with this many hijinks you need built in time without hijinks uh and by definition the non-hijinks times are going to seem a little they're going to be less interesting they're going to seem more boring than the other stuff but the and very frequently like, like this happens in comedies all the time is uh you know somebody will be saying oh gosh this movie was so hysterical i was laughing every scene except this one scene here that it didn't really just it didn't do anything for me it didn't make me laugh i wish they could have done something funnier in that scene not realizing that that scene actually let you breathe and recover your energy so that that you were then laughing all the harder in the other scenes. Uh, That's you know, every good com- every good comedy needs. Uh, this was the first thing. This was the first rule that they gave us in Spamalot. Uh, was without even something as crazy as Monty Python, without having moments of uh, you know sincerity and connection and characters who are legitimately just pursuing their goals. Um, then what you've just got is people chasing nothing but five cent laughs all the time. Uh, I always like the the metaphor. An audience has a dollar's worth of laughs. 
or $10 worth of laughs for every show. And if you are spending them on nickel jokes here and there, then they're going to laugh, but they're not really going to get a deep um, enjoyment. But if you save things up for the 25 cent laughs, for the 50 cent laughs, that's going to really would be the thing that leaves a memory that they carry with them, uh, even though they might quote unquote laugh a little bit less in terms of quantity. Uh, so I don't know whether the, I don't know whether that was in any way the goal, the Heimdall plot. Um, you know, for all we know, they wanted it to be super interesting and it just didn't pan out that way. Uh, but even, even inadvertently, uh, the less interesting plot serves a purpose to the overall interest of the movie. All right, let's get to the big four. Um, uh, let's start with Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner and also the character of Hulk. And I will go ahead and let you go first. Uh, so here's the thing. I don't dislike Mark Ruffalo. Um, I've never really seen somebody, Bruce Banner is such an enigma. I mean, don't get me wrong. I didn't really, I didn't particularly care or not care for Ed Norton's uh, Bruce Banner. Um, you know, Mark Mark Ruffalo has always done, you know, a fine job with him. I do kind of like his soft-spokenness. Um, certainly you see the insecurity in everything that he's doing. Uh, and he plays the pathos well. So to me, he is not a, like Mark Ruffalo as Hulk, to me, isn't as much of a slam dunk for me as, oh my God, you couldn't have had anybody but Robert Downey Jr. be Tony Stark. Um, sure. But but he always turns in a great performance. Well, and and it's worth, like I, one of the things you have to keep in mind is he is also doing Hulk in a motion capture mm-hmm. suit. It's his voice. Yeah. It's his performance. That's what you're getting. Um, Banner is so Bannery. Um, but I'm I'm digging this Hulk a lot. This is the Hulk that I remember from the comics. Is this is speaks kind of like a toddler. Um, uh, you know, can be funny. You know, is not just a growling, screaming mach- like rage machine. Um, but is is a character with his own thoughts and feelings, as you and I discussed last time. Um, and seeing insecure Hulk, seeing the Hulk who you're not Hulk, friend. You know that this is my favorite Hulk. Is the Hulk in this movie? And mm-hmm. for him to go from that back to neurotic banner and then back to what hulk is at the end of the movie i think is is um i think that this is my favorite performance of him in both roles and i am I see that. Um, yeah. um i really enjoy him in this role and certainly i've never seen anyone do hulk better than i've seen hulk in this movie um i've never been a huge hulk fan hulk was always kind of a blank slate except in this movie i'm a fan of hulk every minute that he's doing every minute with hulk and thor i love um from the fighting to the arguing to the to the, the to him and Banner, I all of it. I love. I think it's an inspired choice to make it a buddy comedy with them, and I think that. Um, let me coming into sure coming into. Uh, let me let me take this next one, or just let me ask you. Um, with Tom Hiddleston as Loki, uh, we have sung his praises uh, uh, many thousand times in all of his previous turns in this role. Um, I mean, obviously he's awesome in this movie as well. Uh, my question for you is: Is there anything new about his performance in Loki in this film that jumps out uh, that? has not appeared in other fi- that that you know that we have not seen him do in other iterations of the role I would say yes absolutely this is um, and if you want to know how you can tell um, spoiler alert I how much does it hurt when he dies at the beginning of Infinity War um, because it's not the it's not the the blue you know angsty Loki from the first Thor that I'm upset about it's not the the Loki on Earth trying to kill everyone that I'm set, upset about it's not the broody mopey Loki from the second Thor that I'm upset about. It's this Loki. This Loki who's having a brush with being a hero despite his own tricksterness. Um, the Loki who finally found his way to the light that then he's still, you know, he's still himself but he found his way to the light mm-hmm. and then he has his life snuffed out moments after the post credit scene in this film. And so when he dies in Infinity War, it is specifically this Loki 
that I am so upset about. I absolutely get that he loves Asgard. He loves his brother. Um, He is a deeply feeling guy with just the worst impulses. Um, So yeah, I think that this is, not only is he doing something new in this, but I think that this is him coming into into fruition. Um, So yeah, this is by far my favorite Loki and I think that he's, he's, there's a lot more warmth to him in this. How about you? Uh, I think you said it really well. And uh, I also, I want to make sure that we get time, that we get through the characters because I know you've got a, we've got a heart out this time and I want to make sure we get to the, yeah. the big question too. Yep. But yeah, no, you summed it up. All right. Well, the, the, up great. All right. So, so real quick on the, on the last two, we'd already uh, mentioned them. Let's start with Hela. Um, I've thought a lot about what you said. Um, a lo- I thought a lot about what you said about Kate Blanchett um, and about how this is in her wheelhouse. So I went back and I started thinking about the way that she performed other rules. And you know, I, I, I think that this role most closely resembles her role in the aviator actually. Um, there's such such a theatrical I just feel like she's having fun um, oh definitely and she's not you know, when I see her doing Galadriel I don't think she's having fun when I see her do Elizabeth I don't see her having fun and there's something joyous again when you can step outside and appreciate that it's an actor there's something joyous about watching an actor really enjoy what they're doing just loving chewing every bit of scenery um, mm-hmm. and she is having a great time I think that she is visually incredible I think that she is the most magical menacing bad guy that you've had in any of the Thor movies. Um, and in most of Marvel, I think she's one of the, she's a top tier Marvel villain. And I think the performance is, is first rate. Um, so yeah, I think this might be my favorite role that I've seen her do. So that's what I think about, uh, Kate Blanchett as hell. Are you? Uh, so the very best Shakespearean actors, uh, or classical actors are always at war between their tremendous, on the one hand, being tremendously eloquent and, you know, with gravitas and, you know, and great bombast while at the same time striving for sincerity and subtlety because they they know that the instance that they turn off the sincerity and subtlety, that suddenly you know, it's Edwin Booth doing Shakespeare 250 years ago, where everything is big and huge, and the, and it's just, it's the kind of thing that we you know, that we mock old, you know, old-timey theater for. Um, so that being said, there are few things more enjoyable, though, than seeing a truly titanic classical actor being told, no, that's okay, go there, you know, like, don't worry about this, like, everything that you are, everything that you've put limiters on, to make sure that you don't become that Shakespearean actor, turn the limiters off. That's that's what we want. And uh, I feel like this is certainly an example of that, where it would, like, she couldn't, um, Hela is not, Hela is a role that would have been practically impossible to overact, I think. Yeah, no, she's spectacular. I will let you finish uh, uh, with Thor. Uh, why don't you start it off, and then I'll round it up, and then we'll get to our discussion. Chris Hemsworth as this version of Thor. Your thoughts? I think the most important thing with this is, uh, you know, you see the glimmer of how much fun he he could have with the role in the first Thor, you know, less so in the second. It just wasn't as interesting of a of a script. Um, you know, the Thor in Dark World was very, you know, very much a Shakespearean character. Um, it is clear how much Chris Hemsworth is enjoying himself in this film. Uh, just he's he's madcap. He's having a delightful time. Uh, and it is also you get this moment of this is the film where the character where the character and the actor finally meet in the oh like it's that moment when you finally find the character 
character when you've been trying a whole bunch of different iterations and finally you click in something that's just like, oh, it's this. This is who this, you know, it's like, this is how I want to do this role. Um, and I think this was clearly an example of that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. I think that you see the Thor that you remember from the second movie at the beginning of this movie, even though the, the dialogue and the performance is kind of this new Thor. I love he loses his hair. He gets a different look. He loses his cape. He loses his hammer. He loses Asgard. He loses his father. Um, he loses, you know, for a while in the movie, he loses his power. Um, so they strip him down of everything that Thor is known for and they get to who he is as a guy, which I love. It's a, it's the best part of the first movie and they're doing it better here. He is having such a great time. Um, the, the conversation about uh, about an email is one of the funniest things. It's called an email. Do you even have a computer? No, what for? <laughs> it's, 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 it's so much fun. Um, and again, it feeds right into Infinity War where you then see he loses everything and it breaks him in Infinity yeah. War and he is just in a path of vengeance in that movie. And then you get to Endgame where he has to overcome the depression. Still with the the fish out of water comedy always poking its head in, but also allowing the character to grow, change, and be everything he's supposed to be. I, I like this guy. I like Chris Hemsworth. I think he's in a, a, a phenomenal actor. Um, and uh, yeah, this is the best he has ever been and maybe will ever be maybe this is going to be the signature movie that they they call back um so that's all the characters ladies and gentlemen uh are uh why don't you give uh arthur why don't you give everybody a hint of what we're going to be talking about in the last 10 minutes of the show well certainly this might be and honestly this series might be the most iconic example of this but i was trying to think what other instances have there been where either a tv show or you know or a series of films uh or even books uh has becomes known for one particular kind of tone but then pivots into to a, a tone so different that it practically becomes a different genre. Like, yes, the characters, the, yes, there's a through line of characters and actors, but in a very real sense, Thor Ragnarok does not take place in the same world that Thor 1 and Thor 2 do. And, you know, are there instances of when is it the right time, when when is it okay to do that? Uh, are there times that it sort of, it does a disservice to the things that have come before? Um, I mean, I think if both, neither Thor nor Thor Dark World were received phenomenally well, uh, and so I think they definitely definitely felt that there was certainly more freedom to try something new. Uh, if anything, there was a there was an urge to try something new uh, to see if they could make something click. Yeah, I think that the first place that we got to look is right in the Marvel Universe. Um, I think that the Captain America trilogy is a really interesting example where the first movie is vastly different from the second, which is vastly different the third from the third, right? The first movie is your throwback. It seems more like The Rocketeer, which is not surprising because that's the same director. Um, mm-hmm. And then it, it, it turns into into you know, you know, three days at the Condor um, or the Manchurian yeah, camp, straight up Cold War spy. Uh, for the second film, and then turns into essentially the Russo brothers' audition piece for making an, an Avengers movie for the third mm-hmm. one. Um, and and that trilogy is three completely different films from each other, but it, it isn't so much of a left turn. The other one that really sticks out to me, I mean, there's a TV version. I think Agents of Shield uh, did this very much, um, where if you look at the show, every season seems vastly different than the season that comes before. Um, uh, I. I think that Angel did this in its fifth season, that the fifth season of Angel is an anomaly to all of the rest of Angel, um, where it becomes a a buddy buddy lawyer procedure comedy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a great example. Um, the other example that I really feel is um, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 um, strikes me as well as being a... The first two Elm Street films are very dark. Um, very The second one's strange and wonderful in its own way. Uh, the third one is bigger and 
Freddy does joke a little bit, but in the fourth one, Freddy starts putting on sunglasses and, you know, and like playing jokes and being really kind of a jokey anti-hero almost, even though he's a slasher. And that continues to get bigger and sillier and bigger and sillier so that by Freddy's Dead, the Final Nightmare, which is the sixth one, he actually turns his glove, the killer glove, into the power glove from Nintendo and turns somebody into a video game and kills them that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And then then it pivots right back to a super dark rethinking of Freddy, which is sort of the way that things go as it gets more more and more and more comedy and then you try and pivot back to the dark. Um, And so I think that you have, you know, outside of other clear reboots, like let's say Christopher Nolan taking over the character of Batman, that's a different trilogy. It's not the same actors. It's not the same continuity. Um, So I would really say Nightmare 4, uh, um, the other Marvel films, those are some examples. Do you have any that really strike you that you you have enjoyed? Uh, You know, the Angel one I was thinking was definitely something that you can see it when, you know, sometimes when there's a change in showrunners. Yeah, certainly season five of Angel was uh, more comic. Um, I guess rather than specific examples, to me, I always ask, it's like, okay, so there's always like a, so you almost look at the whole arc of a particular story as, okay, there was the time before the pivot and then the time after the pivot. And frequently somebody will prefer one over the other. You know, I prefer Thor Ragnarok to Thor and Thor the Dark World. Um, Some people probably preferred Scary Freddy over Comic Freddy and vice versa. Uh, The question then is when you do the pivot and if somebody actually prefers it, does that end up then, is it just seen as a growth from what you were doing before or is it more as seen as somehow a disservice or in some way an abandoning of what you did before? Well, I think that really is going to come down to who you ask and whether they like. I think if people like the Jokey Freddy, then they're going to tell you that no, it's a growth. And if people dislike Jokey Freddy, they're going to tell you it's an abandonment. Um, yeah, I think probably. that that you know it's really easy to it's it's I'm sure we I mean we could go through a million things in fiction uh, where where this happens and and you know I keep having things come to mind I think I think that Star Wars Episode One is a great example of this where where if you look at the original Star Wars trilogy for as big as the stakes were for everyone it's really about six people and a little adventure The Empire Strikes Back is really about you know one guy goes to a to a planet and uh, one guy goes to a swamp planet and two other people go to a cloud city and then the guy from the swamp planet comes back to the cloud city and that's what mm-hmm. happens in 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 the second star wars whereas when you get to episode one and this ends up being necessarily true for all of star wars including the sequels even including solo i feel that suddenly it becomes galaxy spanning and big and everything's huge and it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's you know and and i think that that you certainly can say that a pivot happens around there but you see a lot with music too um where a band starts as one thing you know I think of um, of the Beatles album like Rubber Soul or Revolver or, or even really you can go to like Sgt. Pepper's where they were like one band and then this happened and they, were and they became another different. band. Um, and, and I, I would say the same thing is, yeah, go ahead. The, I, I, you, you're absolutely right. Man, where this happens the most is with bands. Uh, and I think the, the great, uh, the needle that every artist or creator needs to thread is on the one hand, you want to give people kind of what they know you for. But on the other hand, if that's all you do, even if the, even if the people consciously are saying no, we just want more of the same. That's not actually what they're going to want long term. So like the great the greatest artists are the ones who had the wisdom to say this has been going really well. I need to, but I need to make a change, and I need to make the change right here at this point, and this is the way that the change needs to happen. Because uh, that is a that is a moment. The moment of change is something that you can either mistime it, you can either take it in a direction that is was actually not the right way to go. Like that moment is very easy 
to screw up, even though for pretty much any long-running series, it is crucial. Uh, you know, say what you will about the, you know, the nine different Star Wars films. Um, if every single, if all nine Star Wars films had essentially followed the exact same formula, that wouldn't have worked either. You know, we can certainly go back and forth as to whether or not the changes and the pivots were the right choices, but I, but I feel very strongly that they had to make a choice to pivot somewhere. Okay, so to wrap it up, um, on a, uh, on a scale of one to five broken Mjolnirs, what would you give Thor Ragnarok? I mean, I gotta be honest, this one, I think I'd give this one just a straight up five. Um, is it just for, it's not industry changing, it doesn't carry nearly the same weight as Infinity War or Endgame, but it was so fresh and so delightful and in many ways so utterly new. Um, even, even though Ga- Guardians of the Galaxy had come out, there was, there was a brightness, uh, to this that I had not seen before. Uh, and especially considering that, you know, Thor the Dark World, for better or for worse, was considered, uh, you know, critically, uh, was considered a bit of a creative failure. Uh, this film not only, you know, revived interest in Thor, but actually kind of locked him in as being one of the favorite heroes of the Avengers. Uh, this movie did so much right in and of itself, uh, and it also pretty much single-handedly saved uh, a character. Um, and it's worth noting, single-handedly saved the actor's desire to play that character. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, even for its few flaws, I would give this one a five. Yeah, if this isn't a five, I don't know what is. Um, it's uh, it's ambitious in in what it's trying to change. Um, it makes almost no mistakes. Um, it is uh, it is perfectly crafted, hilarious, at times heartfelt. Um, the action's great. I mean, it just succeeds in, in every possible way. Straight five. Um, mm-hmm. Love this movie. Uh, I could watch it right now. And that's it for Thor, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for enjoying uh, uh, these these three movies and these six podcasts i don't know what's coming next we have some ideas um yeah. uh but we hope that you guys are staying uh staying safe and staying healthy with everything going on um and uh thanks for making us part of your summer uh can't wait to see what we have come out fall but for now my name is justin and my name is arthur and hey there true believers stay super Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 